This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Coming up on today's show, Alberta Party leader Barry Morishita will join us after a disappointing night on Tuesday. Remembrance Day tomorrow, we'll speak with Dr. Jonathan Vance, a professor in the Department of History at Western, and we'll also talk about Mastodon. You might have heard of it. A lot of people heading there because Twitter's turned into a bit of a mess, but what is it? We'll find out. We had a pretty good discussion yesterday about the Alberta Party, and it, it's it's interesting because whenever we talk about the Alberta Party, I hear from lots of you on the text line, and you call in and you say that, you know, you think the Alberta Party appeals to you, right? You, you feel you're more of a centrist, yet every time it goes to an election, the Alberta Party doesn't do well, uh, including Tuesday, I think. Now, okay, there was some improvement, but... Uh, I, I I was expecting a better performance. I, I, I'm not going to say I expected Barry Morishita to win the Brooks Medicine Hat by-election, but um, 16, 17% support in his home riding. I don't know. But let's find out how Barry feels about how things went. That's more important than how I feel. Barry Morishita joins us now. Um, Barry, thanks for your time. I appreciate you being here today. Oh, thanks for the call, Shane. Yeah, so your reaction to Tuesday's by-election, I, I have to think you were hoping for better results than 17%, were you? Yeah, no, yeah, we were. I, I mean, we uh, we worked hard. Uh, we had a, a great team, both um, working in the two big centers and around. We were not in the small places as well. And yeah, we did. We we did expect to to do better. We obviously we improved from the 2019 general, but yeah, I, I, I had hoped to do better. Uh, yeah, I mean, a pretty marked improvement, right? I mean, in terms of percentage of vote earned, you did go up quite a bit. Yeah, we went up uh, about ten percent um, relative to the last figures, and uh, you know, and that and that's a thing to look at. But um, you know, obviously, we we did we wanted to do better, so we we've got to have a look at that, and and uh, we have some ideas about um, why that happened. So. Yeah, that's what I'm wondering. I mean, it's 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 always interesting to me because, like I said, when we talk about the Alberta Party here on the air, I hear from a lot of people that think that that might be a home for them. There seems to be. <sighs> an appetite for it, but it doesn't seem to translate into votes at the ballot box. Do you have any idea why that is? Well, you know, I think so. One of the things that came up at the doors and, and um, you know, that you, you had those groups that were, were both both vote, uh, worried about vote splitting. So they, they vote out of fear. They're worried about they're worried about Daniel Smith becoming the MLA. They were worried about Rachel Notley becoming yep. a premier. Yep. They, you know, that was, that was a, that was a thing that came up and it shifted. It was interesting at the beginning of the door knocking. It was more about, you know, you're going to prevent us from, from winning, uh, that was the NDP. And then as the, the weeks went on towards the end, it was the others that were worried about the UCP supporters were worried that we were going to take vote away and then the NDP was going to win. So I think people are voting out of fear. Um, and, and I, I'd hope that wouldn't happen this time because, um, Everywhere we went, ex- exactly to your point, no one has been happy with government the last no. two terms. You know, they, they you know, we, uh, did you like the NDP? No. Did you, do you like what's going on with the UCP? Do you like the new leader? No. But they're afraid of each other. And, and they built a culture of fear 
And uh, everybody thinks they're strategically voting when actually what they, they uh, you know, it's, it's hard to figure out exactly when they decide in the ballot. But I think that's out of fear. I think that, and that was how ha- that happened. You know, in Brooks, for instance, I won about 30% of the vote, mm-hmm. but I, you know, which is still not done good enough, right? And I've been here my whole life. So, um, yeah, I think fear uh, guided a lot of voters. So the question then is, and I think you're right, and uh, to their credit, um, the UCP and the NDP have played to that, you know, vote, you, you know, I mean, it's it's not necessarily voting for us in a lot of cases, it's voting against the other party to make sure they don't get in. And then, you know, a lot of people see the Alberta party as quote unquote wasted vote, if that's what their goal is. How do you as leader overcome that? I mean, how do you say, wait a minute, wait a minute, we, we were a legitimate opportunity here, not necessarily a wasted vote, but we we can do something. Well, I, I think to your point, uh, you know, whether whether it feels sometimes like you're kind of banging your head against the wall, uh, this is the right thing to do. The fact is, is that our politics need a discourse that's thoughtful and respectful. And if we couldn't, uh, and most people want to be there. And I think if we can't deviate from it, the only way, you know, to, to get into that game is to is to send out the literature like the UCP and the NDP did to constituents here, which was, you know, be afraid of the, the Trudeau-Singh uh, um, coalition or, you know, she's going to destroy this or they're going to destroy that. Like, we're not going to get into that. We know that's not true. We know we're not getting very good government it's not representative it's not very progressive um but uh we have to stick to that message and um maybe we just got to figure out ways to uh to do that better i guess um it was helpful having the by-election i mean i think uh quite a few more albertans got to see what i'm like as the leader what the alberta party wants to talk about and how we want to talk about it and you know, we have to take those victories and, and hopefully move on and, and grab a few more percent every every uh, every day that happens. And you make a good point because then there's already text coming in saying, uh, you know, how do we, uh, you know, Barry's not doing enough. We're not hearing enough about the Alberta Party. And, and I sympathize with you on that front because when you don't have a seat, when you're not in the legislature, when you're not the opposition, you're not going to be the first call of the media. There's That's just the reality. So how do you break through all the noise? And boy, is it going to get noisy over the next <laughs> next six or seven months, Barry. You know that. How do yeah. you cut through as a member of the Alberta Party without a seat in the legislature? Well, I mean, I mean that is that is a struggle. I mean, the, one of the jobs of media is to provide balanced reporting, and I I feel bad for them because you know I often you know reporters are trying to do fifty two things in one day. So once they have their story of conflict between the UCP and the NDP, you know they can yeah. run run with their story, and um, we have to we have to raise it up from the bottom. I think. Um, local issues matter to people across this province, so we grab good, good local uh, candidates. Um, we stick to our message. Um, but you know, I did have I had one fundraiser say, "Just say something crazy; they'll forget about it later." Like, but you'll get your name in the news. But you know, who wants Albertans don't want that government, and they, I don't know. We, somehow we have to shift that mark over. I think the other thing is is that money plays a big part in it too. Shay, we yeah, sure. We, we don't have the profile, so we don't have the money, so we can't constantly curate a message. It's just, it's it's not affordable. So I think it's a question of, you know, Albert, of, um, making Albertans see that this is a better pathway. This would 
provide Albertans with a, a voice, the real voice in government that they're looking for and the solutions they're looking for. And, you know, we have to get them to prom- uh, do that by sending us money, by by giving us the opportunity to do that. And then we have to work really hard uh, in order to make it happen. It, it, we, we really do believe it can happen. Um, it's it does get frustrating, but uh, but we have to believe that the election is only you know six seven months away. So I I don't know if it's realistic, but I'm sure you've heard the questions following Tuesday. I certainly have from the audience saying maybe Barry's not the guy if he can only get sixteen percent in his own backyard. What does that say going into the general election? Have there been those questions? And are you confident in your leadership? And you will be staying on until the next general election at least. Yeah, I, I believe I will. But I mean, we, you know, the party has an AGM here in, in, uh, in a few weeks in, in Edmonton. And, um, you know, if the question comes up, we'll deal with that directly as we, we can. But uh, I believe I am. I believe that uh, the candidates will assemble are going to represent Albertans uh, far more uh, directly than anything the UCP and the NDP have out there right now. I, I think we uh, we just we have to go forward and like i said this message that we're talking about the the approach we want to take to government is going to provide solutions that albertans actually need and are looking for the way to do that they they want to become part of government again um but yeah you're you know you're right you hit it on the head that the two parties have uh, made an entire industry out of making sure you're scared to death of the other person sure. and uh, yeah. it's uh it's too bad because, you know, no one's 100% bad, no one's 100% good, um, and it's it's too bad uh, that um, they can't see the Alberta Party way and, and have a look. But we're, we're not going to deviate from that message. All right. Uh, I appreciate you coming on and uh, sharing your thoughts with us this morning, and uh, we'll see how things go over the next six, seven months. Barry Marshita, thank you. So tomorrow is, of course, Remembrance Day, and once again, Canadians will be pausing to remember those who sacrificed so much for us so long ago. Now, yes, Canada has been involved in conflict uh, since the World Wars, of course, but those those are still the focus, I think, for a lot of people. I mean, our annual day of remembrance is November 11th because it was November 11th of 1918 when the First World War ended. So, um, But the stories of those World Wars get farther and farther away every year. Fewer and fewer veterans, witnesses, people who lived through it are still around to tell us the stories. But our next guest has worked at preserving and documenting Canada's war history in a number of different ways with a number of different books. Uh, Dr. Jonathan Vance is a professor at Western University, and as I say, he's written several books on Canada's military history. I'm delighted he has time to join us now. Uh, Dr. Vance, thank you for being here. I appreciate it very much. My pleasure, Shay. Good morning. So I guess yeah, tomorrow we mark another Remembrance Day in this country, and it seems to me, uh, I'm, I'm 51 now, but it seems to me like every year the occasion gets a little less than it was the year before, slightly less momentous or important. It doesn't seem to be as big of a deal as it was when I was a kid, especially. Do you get that same feeling? I think it um, uh, peaked sort of around the millennium. Uh, and when people were talking about uh, such a, a big passage of the year, um, Remembrance Day suddenly got a boost. Yeah. And the fact that the last of the First World War veterans were passing around that time um, really gave it uh, a lot of public interest. I think you're right. I think it's it's perhaps uh, gone backwards a little bit. 
Um, but it, it has its ups and downs over the years, has, has done for decades. Okay. All right. Um, and like you say, uh, you know, the veterans who are passing, we, I, I don't think there's any left from the first world war in our country. Um, second world war, we lose more and more of them every day. How, how much of a factor is that in terms of just not having those voices, not having those people around, uh, telling us the story? How much of an impact does that have on, on what the day means? Mm-hmm. Well, on one level, it's huge because the, uh, one of the, the big emotional, impacts of Remembrance Day as an observance has always been going out in the street and looking at the lines of veterans and knowing that, that they have uh, seen war, they've lived war, they've, they've come through war. Uh, they were our connection to history, if you like. And without them there, it becomes a little more uh, of a challenge. Um, whenever you lose all the witnesses, then you're, you're all, already in secondhand story territory. Mm-hmm. And that um, naturally becomes a little less uh, impactful, has a little less authority when you're, you're hearing secondhand about things. But there are things we can do, fortunately. Such as? Uh, what do you recommend in terms of keeping it alive? Well, I think one of the, the really good things is that the um, profusion of online uh, sources about the two world wars there are, are vast numbers of collections online that are, are really eager to navigate and find, and, and you can uh, explore the war in wars in enormous detail um, in any kind of context you want, stuff that was just not available uh, to people even five years ago. So, yes, uh, we are rapidly running out of our, our witnesses, but at least we still have uh, a lot of documentary evidence that can allow us to uh, come a little closer to what they went through than we might have been previously. And you've done some work on that. There was an interesting uh, uh, book that you put together, sort of talking about the impact of the war on a town, right? Like, we hear a lot about the veterans and people who served, and of course we should. That should be the focus. But the impact that it had on the people that stayed behind, and I, fo- I found that fascinating. Talk a bit about how how those stories are valuable, too. Well, yeah, I wrote on the small town that I grew up in, in in southern Ontario, a little town called Waterdown. And uh, because it was an agricultural town, uh, people's lives had to go on uh, during the war, even when the the boys went away and and the telegrams uh, uh, notifying them of their deaths came back. People had to get on with their lives. But they did so in a climate in which it was almost impossible to put the war aside for a moment. You lived it, you breathed it, you, it was there when you walked around the streets, it was there when you went to church, it was there when you went to school. Uh, and so I think we tend to underestimate the amount of uh, emotional pressure, stress that people on the home front would have felt uh, without any way to escape from, from the war as a, uh, a vast threatening force above them. It must have been quite terrifying. No question about it. Do we do a good enough job of recognizing the the influence that those wars had on us as a country, I mean, in terms of shaping who we are as a people, how we're seen around the world. I know, uh, you know, going back to those First and Second World Wars, if you're in Europe, um, the way they feel about Canadian soldiers, I think, is a lot more um, momentous than we do here in this country. In fact. Mm-hmm. When, when the wars have been fought on your home ground, it's a lot easier to... Uh, keep them immediate. Actually, my wife's over in the Netherlands right now, uh, taking in some of the Remembrance Day observances. Uh, so when you have those physical reminders all around you, it's it's much easier to keep them updated. Uh, and the fact that we were lucky enough not to have uh, a great deal of 
direct war damage on on Canadian soil. It does. You're right. It does make it a bit more uh, of a challenge. And the reality is that there are uh, big sort of high level effects from the war in terms of of legislation and, mm-hmm. and government practice and all these things. But people that tend to be more interested in how did the war affect my community, my school, my church. Uh, I think that's the way that we can really get people into understanding the impact of the war on on Canadians and getting a better sense of it, maybe. Do we do that? I mean, is that work underway? Not a lot of that happens, does it? Well, you know, it's got a real boost during the uh, centenary of the First World War from 1914 to 1918, because there was very little in the way of uh, federal government direction or assistance for commemorative efforts, which on the one hand, it seemed like a bad thing, but on the other hand, it, it allowed all sorts of local groups to step in. Uh, and they did some really wonderful commemorative activities to, that made the First World War come alive in their communities now. And I think were had a lot more impact than anything that might have been done on the national level could ever have done. Where do the more recent conflicts that Canada has been involved in fit into our Remembrance Day observances? I mean, they, they can't be forgotten either. No, there it's it's been tricky. Yes. Um, you said that. Uh, I mean, Remembrance Day is about the two world wars. Uh, initially, the name was changed from Armistice Day yeah. to Remembrance yeah. Day, so it was not connected so specifically to uh, an historical event. But we struggle with how to um, how to deal with these later wars. Uh, Korea seems to be largely forgotten. Later wars in, in um, the Middle East are there. They have political controversy. So we haven't yet wrestled with the idea of whether we can, if you like, honor the the warrior without passing judgment on the war. Can we uh, honor those who who gave their lives in wars that we're still not sure about uh, on a moral level? That, that becomes the real challenge. What about uh, how our government... I mean, it's a holiday, I understand that, but I mean, in the news today that Prime Minister Justin Trudeau won't be attending any Remembrance Day ceremonies, how big of a problem is that? Does our government make a big enough deal about this? Um, Again, I think think Canadians have become less interested in what the federal government's doing on that regard anyways. Yeah. Uh, And I think, I mean, I was initially quite annoyed when the federal government didn't do much for the the First World War centenary. Looking back, I think it was a a really good thing for the reasons I've I've talked about. Mm -hmm. The problem with when the federal government does things, they do things for political reasons. Uh, Commemorations take certain formats um, for reasons that will serve the government. True. And if our commemoration goes down to a local level with people in the communities, we don't see that. Uh, and so in some ways, it's it's nice to see the government step away from that so we don't have to deal with the politicization of, of war history. Excellent point. Excellent point. Um, Dr. Vance, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate you being here today. the future holds for Twitter. If you do, good on you. I don't know if anybody really does. It seems to me, um, at this point in time, Elon Musk is hell-bent on making sure that everybody is mad about Twitter. The advertisers have left. Uh, they have no idea what's going on, so a lot of them have said, whoa, we're going to take a step back here. Uh, a lot of users are bailing, a lot of them. It, it's kind of interesting. They don't know where it's going. And then it was announced yesterday that with this new verification program, uh, you know, if you're not verified, you're going to be sort of stuck into something he 
like into your Gmail spam folder. Like you, you'll only be seeing the tweets from people who are paying to be on there. A bunch of people were angry about that. I mean, and, and then staff employees found out this morning that the work from home um, principle that Twitter had put in place permanently, uh, if you wanted to work from home, that was something you could do. He got rid of that effective immediately, a minimum 40 hours of work per week in the office, no working from home anymore. So, I mean, the list goes on. He fired half the staff, too. <laughs> Tried to hire a bunch back, uh, a bunch of the senior people that were still left, quit today. It's chaos. It's complete and utter chaos. Uh, I don't know if there's any coming back at this point, but certainly not what a lot of people anticipated with Twitter. And if you're looking for a new home, and a lot of people are, um, Mastodon. It seems to be it, a lot of people talking about Mastodon. I'll be completely honest. I'd never heard of it before this week. I, I don't know what it is, but they picked up a, a whole lot of people, several hundred thousand new users this week as people look for a new social media platform. So let's find out what it is and why it just might be uh, what a lot of us have been looking for when it comes to social media. And to help us with that, we have Robert Gale joining us, who is the Ontario Research Chair of Digital Governance for Social Justice at York University. Uh, Robert, thank you for joining us. I appreciate your time. Oh, yeah. Thanks for inviting me on, Jay. Okay, so first of all, I, I've never been on Mastodon. Like I said, I, I don't think I even heard of it prior to this week. So so what is Mastodon? Is it, is it just like Twitter? Is it different? What What, what is Mastodon? Uh, Mastodon is free and open source software that you could take and I could take and we can install on our own computer server and set up our own social media system. And then we can invite our friends to join our server. But the cool thing about Mastodon is our, my server, your server could actually connect to each other. Okay. So my friends could connect to yours. And from there, you build a very big network uh, that's called the Fediverse. The Fediverse. That's right. Yeah. The Fediverse is a collection of all these different little servers. You know, maybe I'm running one, maybe you're running one, and they can connect to each other. And it's not just Twitter-like functionality, but there's other cool stuff happening like PeerTube, which is kind of like a YouTube replacement, and, and PixelFed, which is kind of like Instagram. And all of those things can talk to each other. So it's a little bit like if you could send out a tweet and have somebody on Facebook see your tweet. It's a lot oh. like that. Okay, so it's not it's not a singular platform like we think of Facebook or Twitter or Instagram. It's sort of an amalgamation of all of them, and you can link up with who you want to link up with. Exactly, yeah. And that, that obviously can be a bit of a barrier for entry because we're so used to going to, you know, Twitter.com and signing up, yeah, a central yeah. place. And then we're and sort that, of... That, that can be confusing. Go ahead. And then we're sort of at the mercy of these massive, giant social media platforms. It sounds like these ones give the users a little more control. Yeah, the way I like to think about it, I think I think of it is a lot more democratic because I'm on a relatively small server and I know the administrator. If I have a problem, I can go right to that person and say, here's what's going on. Imagine you can't do that on Twitter. No. You can't do that on Facebook. Um, I think part of the, the the worry here is when you get into a situation like that, and and we, I mean, it's not to say that Facebook and Twitter are the only ones, but it seems like when there's spinoffs, when there's we don't like Facebook and Twitter, and we're going to start something different, they often end up being really awful. Like the worst of Twitter ends up on there. I'm thinking yeah. about like you know this like Parler or Gab or True Social or whatever. Does that happen with with Mastodon? Do they become the home for the people that can't stay on Twitter because people kick them off? 
Well, yeah, that's that's the struggle happening right now. So each server sets up their own codes of conduct. And the culture on Mastodon is have a code of conduct that includes things like no fascism, no transphobia, no racism. And from there, people connect to each other through that technical level, but also socially, right? If, if you're running a server and I don't agree with your politics, I don't have to connect to your server. But what we're seeing is this emergence of very progressive servers linking up to, to each other. But the point you're making is that there's no technical barrier for some pretty awful sites to be set up to. And in fact, that has happened. What happens with something like, say, Gab, which is a, a very fascist social media site, though, is that was marginalized by the rest of the Fediverse because of its politics. I see. Okay, so you have to actively seek it out then which I guess is, is is sort of a barrier in its own way. Yeah, yeah. Gab was initially trying to create this federation of right-wing sites, and they failed because the rest of the Fediverse, the rest of the Mastodon servers and Activity Pub and all these folks basically used the tools to block them, and those tools are built into the software. Gotcha. Okay. Um, what about the fact that we know we're sort of at the mercy of the platform in a lot of cases? Maybe not Twitter quite as much, but to an extent, but certainly with Facebook and things like that, it's the algorithm. They're, they're, they're making us see what they want us to see. We're being manipulated when we're on these platforms. It, does the same thing happen on Mastodon or is it a little less? It does not happen. Uh, the, there is no algorithm shaping what you see. You shape what you see by following people. The downside for anybody considering signing up right now, if they hear me talking, is that when you first join, you see nothing. Right. Because it's not suggesting follow these celebrities or what have you. You have to actively go and follow people. But once you do, you're shaping the things you want to see. How do you know what, like, I mean, that part of the great, as awful as Twitter might be in a lot of ways, it's also fantastic in terms of there's a million different news agencies that I follow. There's mm-hmm. sports people that, I mean, how do you know what to seek out on Mastodon if it, if it's, if it's federations or if it's groups of people rather than just, oh, I'd like to follow global news? Well, you can search for things. There are search features and I follow a variety of news sources. Okay. And increasingly okay. journalists are joining. There are, yeah, uh, journalist-centric uh, servers being set up right now, and that's really, you know, in the past couple of weeks, it really feels like a, a sea change on Mastodon right now. Oh, no question about it. What does that mean for the future of Mastodon, do you think? It, because it's become such a prominent talking point right now, and as you say, a lot of people flocking to it, can it maintain that sort of different model that it has? I mean, at some point when it gets big, uh, there's money involved. Do you think it can maintain sort of this, as you say, democratic grassroots approach it has? It can, but there's a lot, there are a lot of obstacles and dangers down the road. Um, most of the servers, the administrators want to keep their servers small, and that's because moderation is much better at a smaller scale. One of the problems we have with Twitter and Facebook and Instagram is that they're trying to moderate at a global, massive, you know, millions and billions level. And that just not, does not work. Moderation doesn't scale. So a lot of the Mastodon and other Fediverse servers are trying to stay small. That said, this pa- these past couple of weeks with people trying to leave Twitter in such large numbers, there's a lot of pressure on the whole network. Some of the servers have even said, we're not going to sign up new members. And I can imagine a situation where some company comes in and says, okay, we'll set up a very large Mastodon server. Everyone come to us. And they may gain a lot of power in the network. That could happen. 
It's happened with email if you think about the power of something like Gmail or Microsoft Outlook. Okay. And do you anticipate that more and more people will continue to flock to Mastodon? It certainly seems like it. You know, every day I think it's going to taper off, and then I hear news like what you just started out with with the yeah, beginning of the segment. People resigning. More chaotic. Um, and I've seen these waves come and go, but this is most definitely the biggest wave. And right now I don't know when it's going to end. It will ebb at some point. We'll kind of move on. But uh, I think Mastodon will keep growing and chugging along. All right. It'll be interesting to see. Thanks very much, Robert. I really appreciate you giving us some insight as to what it's all about. Thanks for listening today. To hear any of our other interviews, you can find them wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And if you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us.